0: Hello, I am a robot. You are listening to an Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. Hello, everybody and welcome to the fourth episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and this is the story of the history of football in England and Wales, from the origins of the game in the 19th century and before, through to the modern day. Last week's episode took us up to the end of the First World War. With the country almost bankrupt, professional football returned in August 1919, To almost immediate scandal. The decade that followed would feature expansion, the construction of a national stadium, technological innovation and the game's first true celebrities. It would end however with the home national associations isolated on the international stage. This is the story of football in England and Wales in the 1920s. during its formative years, in some parts of the country, the Football League found the going difficult. Poor transport links between the north and south of Wales, for example, meant that the game was slow to take off in the increasingly densely populated south of the country, with Rugby Union stepping in to fill the breach, a gap that the association game has only relatively recently been able to close. In Yorkshire, meanwhile, Clubs around the Sheffield area have been amongst the first in the world to form, but Sheffield is both culturally and geographically nearer to the Midlands than it is to the cities of West Yorkshire. It adopted the association game, while much of the rest of the county adopted rugby instead. The highest profile demonstration of the depth of anger that rugby's schism could cause came in Bradford, when the club voted to continue playing rugby league only for a sizeable rump of its organisation to break away and form a new club, Bradford City AFC. Bradford were one of a clutch of clubs swiftly voted into the Football League throughout the first decade of the century, and Leeds City were also amongst them. Charlie Copeland signed as a fullback for Leeds City in 1912. He became a first-team regular during the war years, but, after falling out with the club over a pay rise, made allegations about illegal payments being made to wartime guest players. He raised the issue with football authorities in July 1919, and even though the practice had been widespread, neither the FA nor the Football League could ignore such allegations once formally brought to their attention. Copeland, however, was otherwise a minor character within a club at which civil war had been raging for some time. Boardroom disagreement had been going since 1917, when the club's manager left to run a munitions factory for the war effort. Fighting at a boardroom level was having a serious impact on the club's well-being. General manager and chairman were at loggerheads, and only the return of the original manager, one Herbert Chapman, gave the club any chance of steadying its ship at the end of 1918. The general manager, George Cripps, provided a written undertaking not to disclose any information relating to the club's affairs. In return for all of this, Cripps would be given £55, rather less than the £400 he had sought. Cripps told his solicitor, who also happened to be Charlie Copeland's solicitor. The commission chaired by FH man JC Clegg, summoned the club to Manchester on the 26th of September 1919 to answer the charges and provide documentation of their affairs over the previous 12 months. City replied that it was not in their power to do so. Immediately, the inquiry ordered the club to produce documents by the 6th of October or face the consequences. The Commission's deadline came and went with no sign of the documents, so the following Saturday's fixture against South Shields was suspended and after a meeting of the Inquiry team, Leeds and City were expelled from the Football League and disbanded. The club's silence was deemed to be an admission of guilt. Five City officials were banned for life, including, rather surprisingly, manager Herbert Chapman. Port Vale inherited City's playing record and completed their remaining fixtures. Leeds United were immediately formed and, after playing one season in the Midland League, were elected into the Football League. The following season came the Football League's Great Sweep South. Virtually the entire top division of the Southern League joined the Football League to make up its third division South. The following year it was renamed with more clubs joining for a 3rd Division North. This gave the Football League 86 member clubs, a number that would slowly be increased to the now familiar 92. The creation of the 3rd Division South also saw the addition of the first Welsh clubs into the Football League, with the admission of Cardiff City, Newport County, Swansea Town and Merthyr Town. Cardiff were parachuted straight into the 2nd Division, and won that title at the first attempt. Wrexham followed these four clubs into the league the following year. In 1921, though, the FA covered themselves in In when they banned women's football. When women went to work in munitions factories during the First World War, informal kickabouts became a popular pastime, an activity that was previously considered unsuitable for the delicate female frame was heartily encouraged as good for health, well-being and morals. As the First World War progressed, the women's game became more formalised, with football teams emerging from munitions factories. Initially, the novelty of women playing football was used to raise money for war charities, with crowds flocking to see the so-called munitionettes take on teams of injured soldiers and women from other factories. As more teams formed people started to enjoy the matches for the skill and ability of the women, rather than, as they had to start with, treating it as a humorous spectacle. Games were still able to raise money for charities. The most famous of these teams was Dick Kerr Ladies FC from Preston. Founded in 1917, their first match drew a crowd of 10,000 people. By 1920, A Boxing Day match against St Helen's Ladies was watched by 53,000 people at Goodison Park, with another 14,000 locked out. Throughout 1921, Dick Kerr's ladies continued to draw large crowds, but the munitions factories were being repurposed and concerted efforts were being made to push women back into the home, despite the introduction of the vote for those over the age of 30, as introduced in 1918 with the support of spurious medical documents which stated that football wasn't as good for women as had been widely advised several years earlier. On the 5th of December 1921, the FA took this view, along with other strong opinions about football's unsuitability for women, as a reason to ban it. The FA called on clubs belonging to the associations to refuse the use of their grounds for such matches. The ban would stay in place for a full 50 years. The Kerr ladies were without doubt the most successful team of all time. They lifted the spirits of many, many people in the northwest and throughout the world, really. A terrifying team in their day. They had a, an unbeaten run of over 320 games. They played us in Everton's Grand Goodison Park in front of 53,000. They used to get massive attendances and if it wasn't for them, football probably wouldn't be where it was today. In the lead-up to the... First World War and during the First World War the men were away fighting. Women worked in munitions factories. Almost every factory across the country had a ladies football team and so women used to play football and provide matches for the local population to watch. 1921 that year they played 67 games of football throughout the country while working full-time at the factory and on the 5th of December 1921 the FA banned them. By 1921 There was one other area in which association football in England was lagging behind other sports as well. The lack of a central home. Cricket had had lords since 1814 and the Rugby Football Union had built Twickenham Stadium in 1909. But the association game still didn't have one by the start of the 1920s. Circumstance, however, dictated that a stadium would be built that was fit to serve as a home for the game in England. At the start of the century, Wembley Park was a rural setting just outside London, although its connection to the Metropolitan Railway in 1893 had already started to change that. The railway entrepreneur Sir Edward Watkin was the first to understand the potential of Wembley, and in September 1892, the foundations of a planned 1,150-foot tower that he hoped would rival the Eiffel Tower were laid. This was followed by the opening of an amusement park in 1894, but the tower itself never got beyond its first level. The foundations were unstable on the marshland underneath them, and Watkins Tower never got beyond 200 feet high. By the time of his death in 1901, it was known as Watkins Folly, and the following year the site was declared unsafe and it was closed off to the public two years later. In 1907, it was demolished, leaving just four craters where the feet of the tower had rested. By 1920, however, the site received a significant boost when it was chosen for the forthcoming British Empire Exhibition. The following year, it was announced that the centrepiece of this exhibition would be a new national sports stadium, and under the guidance of architects John Simpson and Maxwell Ayrton, work started on the site the following year. The new stadium was built at extraordinary speed. Using the latest ferro concrete technology, it took just 300 working days between January 1922 and April 1923 to complete, costing a total of £750,000, £43 million adjusted for inflation. Two 126-foot towers marked its entrance, and the whole stadium was painted white. Its final capacity was 126,500 people. The FA signed a 21-year lease on the stadium, but it was a leap into the dark. Crowds for FA Cup finals held in London since the end of the war had been disappointing, and no one really knew whether Watkins' folly might turn out to be the FA's folly as well. I know a fat old policeman. He's always on our street. A fat and jolly red-faced man. He really is a treat. He's too kind for a policeman. He's never known to frown. And everybody says he is the happiest man in town. <laughs> As things turned out, they cut it fine. Work was completed on the new Wembley Stadium just four days before its first big event, the 1923 FA Cup final between Bolton Wanderers and West Ham United. Rudimentary safety checks were carried out but on the day of the match Wembley was swamped by a vast crowd drawn by the match itself the presence of the King and the spectacle of this vast new stadium. 126,047 tickets for the match were sold but on the day Wembley was swamped by a crowd of anything between 200,000 and 300,000 people. The terraces overflowed and much of the crowd was forced onto the pitch. Mounted policemen, including one on a light-coloured horse which became the defining image of the day, had to be brought in to clear the crowds from the pitch and allow the match to take place. Kick-off was delayed by 45 minutes, and with the crowd still packed tight against the touchline, Bolton eventually won by two goals to nil, with the new stadium's first goal, scored by David Jack, after just two minutes. By the end of the day, though, it was clear that all concerned had benefited from a very lucky escape indeed. A major disaster might have happened that day, and only Providence was the reason why lives were not lost. The FA had to refund more than £3,000 to ticket holders who'd been able to unable to take their places inside the stadium. The country's first Labour government had been elected in January 1924, and they ordered a Departmental Committee on Crowds, the first serious attempt to understand the safety aspects of hosting major events at these new vast arenas. By modern standards, their findings may come across a little naive, but in truth, they were close to the findings of other, more scientific inquiries held in later decades. The committee recommended the police using mounted police where possible because these have proved effective in crowd control situations and allowed officers an elevated viewpoint of what would otherwise be considered a chaotic situation on the ground. They also recommended that the police should determine how many police should be required for an event and that clubs should foot the policing bill a practice still in place to this day. For communication Telephones should be installed around grounds and tickets for big matches should only be sold in advance. They also advocated that terraces should be divided into smaller areas or pens in order to facilitate easier control of smaller crowds. They also recommended the use and positioning of crush barriers as well as changes to the design of entrances and exits. By the middle of the decade though The stadium itself was close to bankruptcy. With the exhibition now dismantled, it was only the forward thinking of new owner Arthur Elvin, who brought Greyhound Racing to the stadium in 1927 and the Rugby League Challenge Cup final there two years later, who kept it going. In the same year that Greyhound Racing arrived at Wembley Stadium, two further stories were added to the growing list of legends surrounding FA Cup final day. The FA Cup had involved non-English clubs since its very beginning in 1872, but Scottish clubs had ended their association with the competition under the instruction of the SFA by the 1880s. Welsh teams, however, continued to play in the FA Cup in the absence of a competition of similar weight in their own country. And in 1927, Cardiff City embarked on a hugely symbolic run to the final, which included beating the favourites, Bolton Wanderers, on the way in the fifth round. A semi-final win against Reading at Molyneux meant that Cardiff City became the first Welsh finalist in a competition that was, by the popular vernacular of the day, more commonly known as the English Cup than as the FA Cup. On the day of the final, additional trains were provided to transport Cardiff fans to Wembley, and police reinforcements were deployed to control supporters who had been sold counterfeit tickets, while a concert was held before the game, which included a rendition of Abide With Me, a practice which has stayed in place ever since, and which is now considered to be a much beloved tradition of FA Cup Final Day. The only goal of the game came with 16 minutes left to play. What a weak shot from Cardiff's Huey Ferguson was fumbled by the Arsenal goalkeeper Dan Lewis, who then also made a mess of trying to collect the loose ball and knocked it over the line with his own elbow. After the match, Lewis blamed a new goalkeeper's jersey for the mistake that resulted in the goal, saying that the wall was greasy and allowed the ball to slip from his grip. As tradition ever since, Arsenal goalkeepers have always washed their jerseys before each match. In winning the match, Cardiff became the last non-English club to win the FA Cup, although they did reach the final again in 2008, before losing to Portsmouth. The 1927 FA Cup final also marked a first in the history of football's relationship with the media, in that it was the first FA Cup final to be broadcast on the radio by the BBC. The first radio broadcast in the UK had come a little over six years earlier. The British Broadcasting Company had been formed in 1922 by British and American electrical companies operating licences supplied by the General Post Office, who oversaw all mass communications on behalf of the government and had started this with telegraphs in the 19th century. Six companies purchased six nominal shares to form the company, moving the model away from the commercial principles that had been the basis of its foundation, and over the next five years the BBC spread across the country through regional studios and relay stations. Money was tight and the project might have failed, but when the general strike of 1926 affected newspaper production, the new company became the most reliable source of news that people could reach. With a mass audience now in place, the government replaced the British Broadcasting Company with a non-commercial, crown-chartered organisation called the British Broadcasting Corporation, which began its life on the 1st of January 1927. For the first radio broadcast of a match played between Arsenal and Sheffield United in the First Division on the 22nd of January 1927, The Radio Times printed a grid of a football pitch in its centre to help viewers follow the match. Square one was that closest to the goalkeeper, and so it has long been claimed that the origins of the phrase back to square one has its roots in this. Others, however, are less certain. It has also been claimed that the phrase has its origins in board games, such as snakes and ladders, whilst others still have argued that the layout of the pitch printed in the Radio Times didn't make it clear that a commentator saying this phrase was referring to a ball being passed back to a goalkeeper. It's most likely that the origins of the phrase are a combination of the two, and it's even possible that the first BBC commentators simply repurposed an already used phrase, which the popularity of the game then popularised in a broader sense. The arrival of radio also brought about the prototype of the media personality, and arguably the first of these was the losing manager on the day of the 1927 FA Cup final. Herbert Chapman had started his managerial career at Northampton Town before moving to Leeds City, where, as we earlier found out, he was banned for life following the scandal that led to their expulsion from the Football League. As Chapman wasn't working in football at the time, he initially didn't appeal the ban, but when approached by Huddersfield Town to become their manager, he finally got around to it and had it overturned. Chapman had returned to Leeds City but he hadn't been anywhere near the club at the time of the incidents described to the FA. His reputation cleared, Chapman carried out a revolution at Huddersfield Town. At the end of his first full season, 1921-22, Huddersfield won the FA Cup. At the end of the 1923-24 season, they won the Football League Championship. Chapman repeated that trick the following year. Huddersfield Town would go on to win a third consecutive league title at the end of the 1925-26 season, but Chapman wasn't there for that. At the end of the 1924-25 season, Arsenal sacked their manager, Leslie Knighton, and their autocratic owner, Henry Norris, placed an advert in the newspapers for a replacement. Arsenal had only narrowly avoided relegation at the end of the previous season, but the possibility for growth that the club had and a doubling of his salary was enough to tempt chapman south that summer there also came a change to the laws of the game reducing the number of defenders to keep an attacker on side from three to two chapman's first signing as arsenal manager had been charlie buckan who was 34 years old but also one of the era's most forward-looking thinkers and buckan wanted to make the most of this change to the rules Bucken and Chapman's plan was to drop the centre-half from a roaming position in midfield to that of a stopper in defence. With the inside forwards brought back to help the midfield, this changed the team's formation from 235 to 343, or WM, named after the shape it formed when written on a piece of paper. In 1927, though, there came another financial scandal, when an FA inquiry found that Bucken had secretly received illegal payments from Arsenal as an incentive to sign from them two years earlier. Norris was found guilty and banned from football, but Chapman was exonerated again. When he'd taken over the managership of Arsenal, Herbert Chapman had arrived at a club which needed to build an identity, having made the short trip north from Woolwich several years earlier. Chapman gave Arsenal its identity. It was he who added the white sleeves to the players' shirts and hoops to their socks in order to make them more visible to each other. His more defensive style of football earned the team the nickname Boring Arsenal for the first time. He oversaw the redevelopment of Highbury and even persuaded London Underground to change the name of its Gillespie Road Underground station to Arsenal. To describe Herbert Chapman as the man who built Arsenal is no overstatement. When Chapman had arrived at Highbury in 1925, he'd set a five-year target for success. And that target was met just in time, when they beat, you guessed it, Huddersfield Town, by two goals to nil to win the 1930 FA Cup. It was the club's first major trophy. Here's Mr Herbert Chapman, the famous manager with his lads at Highbury. And now I'm going to ask him to introduce them to you. Mr Chapman? I must apologise this morning, I'm so husky, I can scarcely speak but my deputy, old Tom Whittaker, will perform Now Tom, do your stuff Alright On my right, this is Boy Baston. Please outside left Alec James, next We Alec is called Please inside left Jack Lambert I'll smile and centre forward Bob, John a Welsh international left half. Herbert Roberts, our tall centre half. Little Charlie Jones, another Welsh international. Frank Moss, our goalkeeper, Lancashire lad. David Jack, our inside right. Joe Hume, our flying outside right. And the popular captain, Tom Parker. He's not so old as he looks, by the way. If only such forward thinking as Chapman had brought to Huddersfield Town and Arsenal had been present at Lancaster Gate. The Football Association first joined FIFA in 1905, a year after its formation. Daniel Walfall, from Lancashire, was elected FIFA president soon afterwards. Things, however, changed. Walfall died in 1918, and for a while it looked as though FIFA might not even survive his death. The changing of the Guard, however, seemed to provoke the high-handed nature of the British administrators and the Home Associations, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, decided to leave FIFA following a meeting held in Brussels in June 1919 when they chose not to exclude those who had been part of the Central Powers during the war from their organisation. The Home Nation's stance, however, did change quite quickly and in nineteen twenty four they rejoined FIFA. Soon afterwards though, they insisted on a very rigid definition of amateurism, particularly with regard to Olympic football. The British Olympic Association had fought against broken time payments, that's the same monetary compensation for athletes' earnings when competing in the Olympic Games, and the Football Association was following suit. On the seventeenth of february nineteen twenty eight, the four home associations met in Sheffield and resolved on British withdrawal from FIFA. Despite stressing a desire to maintain friendly and correct relations in the future with FIFA, their rationale for withdrawal reaffirmed a somewhat arrogant belief that they still knew best. In particular, strong exception had been taken to the resolution adopted by the 1925 Prague FIFA Congress Acknowledging FIFA as the highest authority on all football matters And that it cannot accept the interference or guidance of anybody else in such matters For the next three years, FIFA and the British Associations Sought to find either a basis for the British readmission Or failing that, a common ground upon which they could agree Further exchanges, however failed to yield much by may of meaningful negotiation. Primary coexistence, not re-entry, was the prime goal for the British associations, whose prime concern of preserving their authority and independence either within or without FIFA was at least matched by a willingness to maintain friendly relations with the Federation. For its own part, FIFA played along in hoping for the resumption of friendlier relations with the home nations. Whether they liked it or not, British membership was considered vital for a confederation claiming to represent the interests of a world game. Eventually, in January 1931, the British associations resolved to draw exchanges to a close on the basis of their future willingness to act with FIFA and play teams from FIFA-affiliated association but never again to become as members of the Confederation. The home nations had already missed the 1928 Olympic tournament and the 1930 World Cup finals as a result of their own intransigence, and they would not rejoin FIFA again until 1946, by which time international relations had, in a very broad sense indeed, changed in ways that might not even have been imaginable as the 1920s drew to a close. The Wall Street crash of October 1929 was a cataclysmic event. Its tentacles spread everywhere, including football, with high unemployment leading to lower attendances. More than one lower division club folded. But within a decade, Europe had plunged into war again, and this time almost the entire rest of the world joined in, in some way or another. This war would come to shape the rest of the century, and football was to play a role in both its build-up and once the fighting had started.